0: Well, good morning. Welcome to the Kirk. We're so glad that you're here today. I am so excited to be able to share this message with you today. Um, you got a chance to see uh, our little tiny team that went to Mexico. It was so fun to be with Sue Leak, uh, who is our missionary there that we support. She does incredible work in a very difficult place. And uh, it was fun to be able to encourage her leaders and do a little training, uh, but really just love on them and care for them and spend a little time with them, getting to know them and letting them know that you as a congregation love them and stand behind them. Makes, the, makes a world of difference to them in the work that they do. And so uh, that was a real blessing to be able to do that this summer. And now to speak on Haggai. I love Haggai. It's my favorite minor prophet. We are continuing on with our series uh, that is that is focused on looking at this kind of drive through the minor prophets. And uh, we're in our last section of the minor prophets and uh, we're focusing on the post-exilic prophets. Uh, and so let's take a look at our chart and just kind of catch up to where we are. We have covered all of these prophets that pop up here on the chart, except for the last three here behind the drum set. All right. So these are the ones that we're going to be focusing on today. What I want you to see on this chart is that Israel is no more that's the northern kingdom. Judah, the southern kingdom, has gone into exile and now returned. This is really focused entirely on Judah, but especially on the city of Jerusalem. Let's go to the next slide, and you can see as we zoom in here that um, uh, we begin with 586. In 586, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Neo-Babylonian Empire, by Nebuchadnezzar. He finally got tired of these crazy Jews that were giving him all kinds of indigestion. And so he decided to go and destroy their city. He destroyed the walls. He, tore, he burned the city and he tore down the temple. And then he took the people and he carried them off into exile across the Euphrates into Mesopotamia. Now, what this means from all historical precedent is that the people of Israel will never recover from this. They will simply intermarry into the nations in which they have settled, and they will no longer exist as a people, and their story will be finished. They'll be done. They'll never return to their land. They'll never retain their identity but that wasn't God's plan. You see, God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah, and he told them that this exile would only last 70 years. And it's very interesting because the Neo-Babylonian empire is really just a flash in the pan as far as world empires are concerned. It only lasts 66 years. It was raised up for just this purpose. And then God removes it and replaces it with another empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Medo-Persian Empire is a little more benevolent. And uh, King Cyrus I, Cyrus the Great, Cyrus the Mede in 538 BC makes a declaration that the people of Jerusalem will be allowed to return to to their land, to rebuild their city, and reconstruct the temple. And not only that, There is all this stuff that had been placed in the treasury of the Babylonians, all properly cataloged, all preserved, all of the bowls and golden and silver uh, utensils and barbecue equipment for the altar, all that stuff had been had been categorized, tagged, and preserved for 70 years. And now he releases it from the treasury and returns it to Jerusalem to be part of the new temple uh, that will be rebuilt. Not only that, he writes letters to the, to the royal keepers of the royal forests and say, you can cut down all the trees that you need for the beams to be able to rebuild the house of your God crazy. It's amazing. This is the return of the people of Israel. And so they return under a man named Zerubbabel. And Haggai, Malachi, and Zechariah are the voices of God to this group of people that return as the remnant to Jerusalem in order to take on this work to rebuild the city. The next three weeks we're going to be speaking on Haggai, then Zechariah, and finishing with Malachi. So, let's begin with Haggai. Haggai is a short book, a very focused book. His ministry lasts exactly 54 days. That's it. It's recorded in the book. It's two chapters long, and he gives us a lot of information. He is very focused on the reconstruction of the temple. Um, So, we're going to walk through uh, this passage of Haggai chapter 3, in or chapter 2. Sorry, there is no chapter 3. Chapter 2 in three steps. Let's begin with the returning remnant. Who are these people that return to the land? Haggai addresses them in verse 1. Let's take a look. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Now, I want you to think about these three people, these three audiences that he addresses here. Go to the next slide, and let's look at uh, Zerubbabel is the son of Shealtiel. And you go, oh, that makes it clear. Shealtiel His father was the son of Jehoiachin, who was the last generation of kings to sit on the throne of David. This makes Zerubbabel a direct descendant of the royal line of King David, okay? And he is named the governor of this returning group of people that that end up in Jerusalem. We also have Joshua, who is a certified member of the family of Aaron of the priesthood. So he is the high priest. And then finally, we have Haggai, who is the prophet, who receives words from the Lord, who speaks to both the priests and the kings. This is the restored leadership of Israel, prophet, priest, and king. And God is not only restoring them to their land, but he's restoring their leadership. And so these three groups are significant. These three people are very significant. Now I want us to talk a little bit about the remnant. The temple reconstruction started in the beginning of the book of Haggai, and then it stalled out. And if we read in chapter 1, we read that Um, The people had been focusing on building their own houses, not only building them, but really finishing them, tricking them out, paneling them, making them look nice, making them really, really luxurious, and not building the house of God. And so Haggai gets on him about it, and he says, how can you build your own house when the house of God is laying in ruins? Get busy, get to work, build my house, says the Lord. And so they started the process of rebuilding the temple and got back to the work that God had called them to. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the remnant. Why? Why are these people called the remnant? Why are not they just called the returning exiles? Well, in reality, a lot of people went into captivity and they were there for 70 years. 70 years is a long time. If you look back in our History of 1953 would be 70 years ago. It was different in 1953. There aren't many of you who remember 19... I don't remember 1953, okay? 70 years is a long time. And these people, when they left Jerusalem, they lost everything. They lost their possessions. They lost their social position. They lost their identity as a people. And they were carried off as captives into, generally, into slavery. And they were resettled in another part of the world that they didn't know, that they didn't understand in a language they didn't understand. But God went with them. And while they were in captivity, they began to prosper. They began to get established. They began to live out new patterns of life. They got over their fear. They became more comfortable. They saw the world beyond the land in which they lived. They became involved in commerce. They started businesses. They bought houses. They got established. And then the call after 70 years came for them to return to the land, and many of them said, "Eh, I'm comfortable here finally. My family is settled. We have a little business, right? We got a little deli going here. We're selling bagels. We got all this stuff going on, right? how can we leave this and go back to the land? And so only a really relatively small group of people return to Jerusalem, respond to the call, and they go back to Jerusalem. Now, it was difficult for them to go back to Jerusalem because for most of them, they didn't remember Jerusalem. They had grown up in captivity 70 years, long time, right? And so as a result, when they return to Jerusalem, they're returning to a place they do not know. They're returning to a city that they know has been destroyed, that it's going to be difficult work to rebuild and reestablish themselves. And so it was a very difficult calling that they had taken on by being the remnant. But as they return, they return with the vision to be the people of God in the land again to be those people, to continue to be the kingdom of God on the earth. That was their vision. That was their calling. And they went with this in mind. As I was meditating on this passage, about a month ago, I was laying in bed in the middle of the night. You know how it is. And um, I was laying in bed and I was was thinking, running through this passage, meditating on it, thinking about it. And um, I believe that the Lord spoke to me. How many of you believe that the Lord speaks to us? Amen? The Lord speaks to us. He speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through his spirit. And he said to me this. He said, the pandemic was like the exile. Think about it for a moment. The pandemic happened and we were all exiled from the house of God. We were all sent out. We couldn't be together any longer. We were isolated. Most of us were filled with fear at some level, right? And then, you know, we would we tried to communicate with you. We, we tried to put our services online and they were terrible, if you remember back then. But you all eagerly watched them. And because you desired to be together and to be in the house of God again, but yet it wasn't possible. And the pandemic began this process of separation. And it lasted really for all said and done, a year and a half, two years, that people were away from the regular worship of God in his house together as a community. And over time, people stopped being afraid. And over time, people got comfortable with the change. And people began to see all the potential that they could have with their Sunday mornings. And people didn't want to take off their fuzzy slippers. And they wanted to stay in exile. And I think that's the reason that many people have not yet returned. It's not that they've rejected God, but all of a sudden, it was just too hard to come back. It got real easy to stay away. But those of you who have returned, those of you who are sitting here in these seats, you are the remnant. We see this not only in our church, this dynamic happened not only here in Tulsa, it happened throughout the the United States. It happened throughout the Christian world. I have friends in Costa Rica, I have friends in Mexico, many of them were on lockdown much longer than we were, and the impact of the pandemic was even greater upon them, and they lost larger portions of their congregations that didn't return, that stayed in fuzzy slipper land, and never came back to church. They just never wanted to come back, and so they truly are a remnant of what they used to be. We are the remnant, but you've come back. And the reason you've come back is because you understand the vision of the destiny that God has for us. That we are the gathered church of Jesus Christ. That we are here and we are together for a purpose. Amen? We represent the kingdom of God and that's why we're here. It doesn't mean that God has rejected the people that, are, that stayed away. I think God is still going to be continually calling them back into fellowship, just as the people of Israel who were out in the diaspora, who stayed out in the nations, God still had a plan for them. And eventually he will call them back and he will gather his people from the four corners of the world. That is the returning remnant. The disappointing reaction. Let's talk about the disappointing reaction as we move forward here in our passage. I want us to dig into the text now of Haggai because Haggai calls out the reaction of the people uh, to what was going on. Let's take a look. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? What's he talking about here? Well, many of you in your Bible reading, in our Bible reading together, about a week, week and a half ago, you read through the book of Ezra. And the book of Ezra is the historical context for the book of Haggai. Okay? And so, as we read in the book of Ezra, let's go to the book of Ezra. In chapter 3, there's a little passage here that talks about the reaction of the people when they had laid the foundation for the second temple. It says, and all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud. And when they saw the foundation of the temple had been laid, while many others shouted for joy, no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping. Because, of the, pe- because the people made so much noise. So you can imagine, as the people are laying the foundation of the temple, they came together to celebrate, and the older people who remembered Solomon's temple, they looked at this foundation, which was much smaller than the original temple, and made out of broken stones that were pulled out of the rubble. And they remembered the quarried, beautiful limestones that were hand-cut from the quarries just over there and brought to the site. And the temple was built in gleaming, beautiful, white limestone. And they remembered the beauty and the glory of that former temple. And they began to weep for what had been in the past. And they said, this is nothing like what it was. And then the younger people who had grown up in captivity, who had never seen a temple for God ever exist, they had only been minorities living in a pagan world, they saw the temple and they were like, woohoo! This is awesome! Right? And there's this diverse reaction in the community of God over the same event. And folks, we are living this out today in the church we're living it out in the church. We're living it out in our church. Because those of you who have been here for a long time at the Kirk, you remember the Kirk differently. You remember the days when our parking lots were packed so full that we had to build a, that, that crazy second tier thing over there in order to stack cars up because they didn't fit. And not only that, we had three shuttles running continually back and forth from local parking lots in order to bring people over because we just couldn't pack all the people into our parking area for this church. You remember this room looked differently. And as a result, there are some people in this congregation that are weeping as they remember how things used to be. They're remembering before the exile what things were like. They're looking back, and they're saddened. I got an amen from that in the earlier service, (laughs) as you can only imagine. The younger people, though, the people who are here now, who are here with us, I mean, I would say almost half our staff is new since the pandemic. All of Colin's family team is new since the pandemic, including Colin. <laughs> and so they don't remember what the, they're just going, woohoo, this is awesome, right? And others are weep are mourning over the change. And I understand it, I get it, because we love what God did in the past, But God speaks to the leadership. Look at what Haggai says. Let's go back now to what our passage was. Go back one. What does Haggai say? Who of you who is left, who saw this house in its former glory, how does it look to you now? Does it seem like nothing? He's speaking to the old guys, right? He's speaking to the guys who remember the past. And he's saying to them, I understand what you're saying. I understand your concerns. But now he encourages. Now he gives us a word of God. Look at what it says. Go on. But now be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Do not fear. Be strong, be encouraged. Be filled with hope. He speaks to the leadership. And then he speaks to the people. And he encourages it and encourages them. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what is happening. Don't be afraid. God is speaking to the same way, in the same way to us. We must be strong. We must be hopeful. We don't need to be afraid. If we're not careful, a spirit of discouragement and fear will consume us as the Kirk, as a church, and as the church in general. Because what's happened at the Kirk has happened all over the United States, hasn't it? Churches, we used to be the religion of the nation, right? Christian, we were a, a Christian nation. Christian values were American values. And that's changed. We were the moral ma- jo- majority, and now we're just a moral minority. And our culture has moved on beyond us. And it's, a, it's frightening. And many people in our Christian community are frightened by this. Let's take a lesson from the from these returning this returning remnant. When they left Jerusalem before their exile, before the city was destroyed, the people living in Jerusalem were autonomous. They were free. They had their own king. They ruled themselves. They were in charge. They were in control. Now as they return, Zerubbabel is not a king, he's a governor. He's under the authority of a pagan empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. Right now, they've been benevolent, but there are no guarantees because they do not know God. And the political winds and interests of a world empire will affect little Jerusalem in powerful ways. And the same is true for us as the church. We are now no longer in control in our society. Our society has moved on. Darkness is increasing. And many people are afraid because it's not in our power to control it any longer. But Haggai speaks to this. Not only does he say, do not fear, he says the reason we are not to fear For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Amen? God is with us. In spite of the fact that we are no longer in control of what happens in our nation, in spite of the fact that darkness is increasing, it seems, every day, In spite of the fact that the church is reduced in size and in power and in wealth and everything else compared to 70 years ago, God is still in control. And the promises that God made to us as his church in the beginning are still true today as they were before. And that's what Haggai is telling his people. He's saying, God who made a covenant with you when you came out of Egypt, that other exile, and then he established you in the land, and he did all kinds of miraculous things. He's the same God, and he is continuing to do miraculous things in your midst, and he is in charge of your life, and he is in control, and so we don't have to be afraid, amen? This is the encouragement that we receive from this passage from the prophet. He goes on from here, and he gives another encouragement. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. He says, I am with you. You don't need to be afraid. Be encouraged, but roll up your sleeves and get busy. Get back to the task that I've called you to. Build my temple. Build my house. Now, why was it so important that the temple be reconstructed? What does the temple mean? What does it signify? The temple is the point of connection between the God of heaven and mankind. It's the place where the very presence of God dwells on the earth. And it is the place where the people come to offer sacrifice and atonement for their sin and to commune and connect with God. This is the point of contact between God and humanity. And this point of contact needed to be reestablished. And that was the job of the remnant. It wasn't just to live in the land, but to be that contact, that living representation of the connection between God and man. That's the job of the church friends. That's why we gather here every Sunday. It's not just to come and listen to a clever sermon from one of these guys. That's not why you're here. You're here to be the light of the very presence and connection of the almighty unseen God with humanity, because that's what the body of Christ does we are the physical representation of God on earth so that the people living in increasing darkness can see the light amen and the longer we stay here and we stay together the longer that light shines for people to come and to be delivered and to be connected and to be healed and to be saved from their sins This is what God has called us together for. This is our vision. This is our purpose. This is the purpose of the church. And that's why we're here. And that's what God has called us to do. We are living stones, right? Paul talks about the temple is no longer a physical building, but it's made up of living stones. People that are built together into a community that represents Christ on earth. And so we, together, are those living stones as we live out Christianity before the world around us. So get to work, Haggai says. And I say the same thing to all of us. There is a lot of work to do. God has given this church a vision, and he's called us to work. Those of us who are weeping... Wipe away your tears, roll up your sleeves, and get busy. Those of you who are rejoicing, don't stay on the margin. Get busy and get to work because there is a lot to do. And God's called us to begin to build again the church for his glory. Is good, but it gets better. So let's move on to the next step in this process, the glorifying promise. The glorifying promise found in verses six through nine. Let's take a look at the passage. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord in a little while God will shake the nations. What does this mean? What does it mean that God is going to call the desired of all nations to come? Well, at first when you look at it, think, well, is it talking about the riches of the nations that he's going to draw out the wealth and the riches of the nations to adorn this new temple so that it's more beautiful? Well, you know, that's a possibility, but in reality, who cares, right? It's got to be bigger than that. It has to be bigger than that. And i tell you what I think it is. What is the wealth of the nations? The wealth of the nations are the people that God is calling to himself right? The wealth of the nations are all of the people like you and me, right? Because we are representatives of the nations. How many of you are Jewish? If not, then we are the nations, right? And we are the fulfillment of this prophecy in Haggai that God would call together from among the nations people to come and be part of his people, to be part of his temple, And that's what he has done, and he has built us together into a nation of people, into a living temple where he dwells through his spirit. Haggai was looking forward to that. He talks about shaking the nations. Do you ever shake a fruit tree? When I was was in high school, uh, we used to have all kinds of peach trees in New Jersey. And we'd walk up and we'd shake the peach trees and the peaches would fall down, all the ripe ones, right? Then you'd eat peaches, right? And run from the farmer. But, But that's the way you get ripe fruit out of a tree. You shake the tree and what is ripe falls down. And that's what God is doing to the nations. He's going to shake the nations so that the ones that he has called, the ones who are ripe for harvest, begin to fall out and they become part of the kingdom. That is what God is doing. He goes on to say that the silver and the gold are mine. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. God is the creator of all things. That means all of the wealth belongs to the one who created it. That means all of your wealth belongs to God. So don't be afraid to give it back to him. It belongs to him anyway. So give with a freedom, knowing that God will bless you, that God is with you, not because of some crazy prosperity scheme, but because God blesses us so that we can continue to sow into his kingdom. That's what he does. He multiplies the talents that we have in our hand so that we can give them back to him, so that we can honor him. And if there isn't enough collective wealth to do what God has called us to do represented here in this room, then God owns the rest of it. So we need to dream big and we need to do what God has called us to do without fear because God will supply what we need to do, what he's called us to do. Amen? So don't be afraid, ruling elders. Don't be afraid, finance committee. God is in control. God is moving us forward. We are faithful. We are careful. But we trust in him, knowing that he has a plan and a purpose for this congregation as we move forward. Finally, we get to the meat. We get to the good part. We get to the the finale of what he had to say about his glory. The glory of this present house will be greater Than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And the old people said, how can this thing made out of broken stones that have been cobbled together be greater than the glory of the house that Solomon built for us? How can that be? And the answer is it was never about the stones it was never about the gold it was never about the silver it was always about God's glory which is the manifestation of his presence in that house and God's glory filled the house that Solomon built and that's what made it glorious not the beauty of the structure amen And he is saying that the manifestation of God's glory in this latter house will be more glorious than what happened in the former house. And what was that? Jesus. Because Jesus, God incarnate, will walk through the gates and into the courts of this very temple that they were cobbling together. And he would speak the words of God. And he would die on the cross just outside of the walls of this temple. And this temple would see his glory like no other temple. And I'm here to tell you folks that you, the remnant today, post-pandemic, we will be the church that receives Jesus Christ when he comes again in his glory. It's going to be us. And so we wait for him, and we wait for him to come, and we prepare for his arrival, knowing that his glory will be even greater than before. In the book of Luke, there are two guys, two people that show up, two old people, and I identify more and more with them each day. One is Simeon, and one is Anna. And the Bible tells us that they're continually in the temple. Anna lives in the temple. The Bible says she never leaves the temple. She's fasting and praying and worshiping day in, day out, waiting for the coming of the Messiah. Simeon has been promised by God that he will see the consolation of Israel, that he will see the Messiah with his own eyes. And he's waiting for that to happen in this very temple that we're talking about, that Haggai's building. And Jesus is carried in by his mother and father to be circumcised on the eighth day. And the Holy Spirit rises up in the heart of Simeon and says, there he is. You've seen him. This is the salvation of the world. This is the light for the Gentiles. This is the the peace of your people. He's here. I tell you what, one day Jesus is coming back. One day the skies are going to crack open and Jesus is going to return. I don't know when that's going to be. I don't know if I'll see it with my own eyes, but it's going to happen. And when it happens, I tell you what, I want both feet planted firmly here in the remnant. Right here in the presence of the community of the people of God, doing what he's called us to do. Amen? I don't want to be half in, half out. I don't want to see if I can keep one foot kind of in and then spend the rest of my time in the world. I don't wanna be doing that when Jesus comes back. That's not what the remnant's all about. God has called us to be dedicated to the work that he's called us to do here in the church. To be creating more living stones that will be built up into a temple where his presence will dwell. Finally, it concludes with this statement, and in this place, I will grant peace. In this place, I will grant peace. Amen? In that temple, Jesus would enter. And outside those walls, Jesus would die. And on the, at the very moment of his death, what happened in the temple? The veil that separated the presence of God and humanity was ripped in half and peace was established between God and man. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, we are justified through our faith in Jesus Christ and therefore there is peace with God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? There is peace. The enmity between God and man has been broken because of what Jesus did. And that's what this temple was for that Haggai was building. And when Jesus returns on that day to this temple, to us as the community of God, he will bring real and lasting peace, eternal peace, because he is the Prince of Peace. Haggai's message was for the remnant who went to Jerusalem to rebuild the identity of God's people on the earth. And now we're the heirs to that identity. And his message is just as real and just as powerful for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the little book of Haggai. We thank you, Lord God, for the encouragement that he gives us and the vision that he has laid out before us. Lord God, we commit ourselves to plant our feet firmly in the remnant, to be committed to the work of building your house, to see your glory, so that peace will come to this troubled world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.